I love listener emails saying they've been inspired by a woman we've profiled on the show or suggesting someone with a great success story to tell. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Today's story comes from a woman who wrote me to say, quote, after 20 years of chronic back pain and PTSD due to a childhood trauma, I discovered the mind-body connection between fear and pain, and I took up boxing. I won the Masters Boxing Division World Championship at 48 years old, and I'm now using what I know to help others through alternative therapies for chronic pain. Wow, that email got my attention. Her name is Stephanie Monick, and this is her story. She is the owner of Knockout Wellness. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Candy. It's been so great to get to know you even before we started recording this interview. Let's start out with the mind-body connection, because a lot of people hear that and they think, what's wrong with me is all in my head. But that's really not what you're saying. Pain has a root and it goes deeper. Talk to us about that. The fact is the brain is actually what's running everything in our bodies. All our sensations, everything is filtered through the brain. It's past experiences. It's current evaluation of the situation at hand. And it makes what I believe it likes to think is an informed decision as to whether or not it's going to do something like send pain to an area which is protective and makes you stop doing something. But the problem lies in the fact that sometimes the brain doesn't get it right. Oftentimes the brain gets it wrong. It overemphasizes a potential danger. It thinks, for an example, I like to use is when you sprain your ankle. So that limp that you develop as a result of a sprained ankle, you didn't come up with that. Your brain did. Your brain sends a series of messages to the body that says, okay, bad ankle, we're going to limp to protect the ankle while it heals. Tell me about your chronic back pain. What did the doctor say was wrong with your back? Multiple herniated discs at four levels, spinal stenosis, degenerative disease, And I don't believe I had any arthritis diagnosis at that time. The most significant part of that is that I was only my mid-20s. So then it was, here's what's wrong, and here's what's going to happen. You'll probably end up on disability or in a wheelchair. If you get pregnant, you'll probably have to go on bed rest. Lots of very danger-producing conversations. That was my entry into the world of pain and chronic pain. So you're talking about being in your 20s when the world is supposed to be your oyster and every day you're dealing with chronic pain. Did it cause you to be depressed as well? And what's it like? I mean, it must have been overwhelming to be in that kind of pain every day. It really is. For me, it was maybe not depression is the wrong word. I was very weary. Your doctor refused to perform the surgery on you. What did he say? What he said was, is because it was a degenerative condition that it would likely return. So I'm thinking, here you are, you go to the doctor, you're hoping for a medical answer to your problem. And he says, we're not going to do this surgery because you're just going to get sick again. So I'm going to guess that it was at that point that you probably just had a moment where you said, well, I'm going to have to figure this out myself. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, I decided I was like, I'm going to do start doing some research. I came across Dr. Ben Benjamin, who's local, noteworthy from Cambridge. He was the former head of the Cambridge Muscular Therapy Institute. And I saw a video of a doctor in a white coat doing like manual therapy on someone. I was like, what is this? It had never occurred to me that there was that kind of branch of therapeutic work out there. Became very intrigued and then really made it my business to learn everything I could about pain. I just was like on a mission. I wanted to learn all of it, which is hard because... 
anybody that's tried to figure things out when it comes to the medical community, unfortunately, it takes so many years between the time the research is done and the actual application that a lot of times this won't even happen in your lifetime. Unless you're willing to do the digging yourself and look at the research yourself, you won't glean any of the benefit of all the tremendous work being out there. And I understand that's how the medical community works, but I think people miss that part. One of the things that you discovered was that physical pain can be a response to unconscious emotions that you had suppressed through your own childhood trauma. I had a traumatic event happen when I was a child. It colored all my experiences after that. And I didn't realize it because I was a child when it happened. So you have nothing to compare it to. It's not like something that happens when you're older and you can relate to a different time in your life. So it wasn't until I was in my early 40s that I even got a diagnosis of PTSD. You know, the doctor kind of was like, what were you waiting for? And I was honestly like, I don't know. I guess I thought this was normal because it was my normal. When you have childhood trauma, your amygdala is damaged. And once your amygdala is damaged, it's damaged. It's going to continue to send these signals of danger in the absence of danger. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. And that just wasn't an answer I wanted to hear. <laughs> How old were you when this happened to you? And can you um, share any of it? Without getting into too much detail, I was elementary school age, around 10 or so. It was an assault involving a babysitter. Childhood trauma also shapes our sense of self. It also shapes the decisions that we make for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. I knew a little bit about childhood trauma from a mental capacity. Now today you're teaching me that if it's unchecked, this trauma unleashes physical pain. The body just has to let it out somehow. Is that a good way to say it? It is. There's a few different theories as to why it happens. You know, one of which is Dr. John Sarno pioneered this approach with his book, Healing Back Pain, and a number of others whom I, I didn't even discover his work until after this. I was like, maybe someone wanted to tell me about this guy. But that basically that the brain sends an impulse to kind of freeze up muscles to tense them in the absence of any actual threat. That's his theory behind it. And he also described what he calls as a goodest personality. And that's the people pleasing the perfectionist, the people who worry, the worriers, the anxiety. I personally kind of have my own theory about where those things interconnect. I believe that, to get back to my initial conversation about the ankle, those behaviors, I call them behavioral limps. So essentially your brain is like, oh my gosh, we don't want anyone to be mad at you or for you to be upset in any way, so we're going to cause you to engage in these behaviors to protect you from essentially further trauma, which is why you are afraid for people to be mad at you, which is why you spread yourself too thin. You engage in all these other behaviors because your brain is trying so hard to protect you from any kind of trauma and it is just completely misguided and maladaptive. It's so interesting as you're saying this because I'm imagining that there are women around the world who are listening to this interview right now shaking their heads going, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's what I do. So how did you discover boxing? I saw Layla Ali fight in the 90s, and I was like, I want to do that. At that time, it was a little bit harder because it wasn't now where gyms are so, boxing gyms are so accessible. You had to walk into the gym, and I just wasn't ready to walk in as a girl and be like, I want to fight, you know? So it wasn't like now where you can go on, they have websites, and you can check them out and try a free class. It really wasn't like that then. And then my aunt died very unexpectedly. And it really shook me up. And I, I started thinking, you know, this sort of someday I will. And I was like, someday might not come. If I want to do this, 
I need to do it. I need to make it happen. When you started doing the boxing, tell me where you were with your own chronic pain. It was controlled. So a lot of the pain science research I was doing led me down a path of, you know, understanding that even though on an MRI, it can look awful. Those things, you know, correlation does not equal causation. There are plenty of people out there that had MRIs that looked worse than mine that were pain free. A lot of people don't know that and a lot of doctors don't tell you that and I don't blame them. It's they're going to use what they have in their toolbox and that's what they have. Medication, you know, surgery, all those things. So I was of the understanding that if I could dose my exercise and always trying to preserve that sense of safety, because when you are someone who lives with that chronic pain and you have that picture in your mind of these crumbling discs, they give you you all this imagery, right? So then you're like, oh my God, that movement. And every pain you feel you think is like further deterioration. That's like the fastest way to get yourself back into a pain state. I kept just saying, this is just because I'm pushing it everything's fine. You know, I'm safe. My back is safe. It's just, and I I started to view it as a personality, you know, or having, you know, it's crabby today because it helped keep that pathological view out of my mind. What happens to you, Stephanie, physically and emotionally when you box, when you punch somebody in the face? Oh, Oh, I wish everybody could see the (laughs) smile on your face right now. It's not so much about the punching in the face. It's having the ability to go in there and you realize it's them or it's me and there's no one that's going to come in here and save me it's going to be them or it's going to be me and it's not going to be me (laughs) you know and and just being able to follow through on that and I think you know for me at least it was the winning is like a drug I mean when they raise your hand I have never felt anything like it before and I venture a guess that I never will feel anything like it again. To have your hand raised in victory, you're just like, oh my God. And then you're just like, we have to do this again. Was there a moment when you said, I'm feeling better? Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That must have been so empowering. It was fantastic. I was like realizing, I'm like, I am feeling good. My back is feeling good. My back is feeling strong and powerful. And I made a point of really marinating in that as opposed to in what happens with chronic pain is you marinate in all the negative. It hurts today, it's this and that. And it's like, if you're gonna allow yourself that, you have to allow yourself the positive, the days that are good. Don't overlook those, because a lot of times I think people do. They're just like, oh, it's a good day. No, you should revel in that. The same way you kind of allow yourself to sink into that feeling very like, ugh, I don't feel great today. I'm imagining that the same is true for you emotionally. As your body started to respond to the training and the empowerment were you feeling better mentally as well yes emotionally definitely and it was an interesting thing that happened because that boxing was a this was a very unintended side effect it took me by surprise I, I realized that when I was in the ring I felt fear for the first time that I could ever remember in my entire life and it shocked me I was like what is this strange sensation My theory is because fear in a boxing ring is normal. It's expected. If you don't have a little bit of fear, there's something wrong with you. So because it was normal and expected, my subconscious mind allowed it in, where I think probably up until that point, any fearful thoughts I had were suppressed, 
hence the chronic pain, hence the people pleasing, because all these fears were suppressed and trying to distract me from them because it's scary. When I wasn't fighting or I wasn't inspiring, I would do like my own sort of guided imagery. I would bring myself to that fearful state and intentionally conjure up those very uncomfortable emotions because I knew I needed to be able to do that in order to fight when it was for real. When you look at a fighter and they look really loose, they're going to do a lot better. You need to be, you know, like uber relaxed and just, you know, take things as it comes and, and just, you know, figure out your strategy. So it's, it's very counterintuitive, I think, for people. Is that almost like being in the zone? Yes. At 48, you win the Masters Boxing Division World Championship. Yep. Take us all back to that <laughs> moment, that day. It was in Connecticut and it's, you know, no surprise, it's hard to get fights as a woman my age. You know, Masters Division is 35 and up. But the, the way the rules go is that you can only fight 10 years on either side. So I can't fight anybody at that time. When I was 48, I couldn't fight anybody younger than 38 or older than 58. And then there's also the weight class to deal with as well. I'm in the heavyweight division. So, you know, no surprise, there's not a whole heck of a lot of women over there that are, you know, upwards of, you know, 180, 190, 200 pounds, right? That are like in their 40s that are like, I box. You know, we're small. And who want to get punched in the face. Yeah, we're, we're a pretty small, <laughs> exclusive crowd. So I was thrilled that it was going to happen. I was able to get an opponent and um, because it's, it's tough. So a lot of that part was a nail biter. I just kept training and training saying, you know, this is going to happen. And, and, and it, it did. did. Yeah, and I got a big belt, big shiny belt. <laughs> What's it like when you hold that thing up over your head? Oh my God, it's the best. <laughs> it sounds to me like this boxing thing healed you from the inside out. Yeah, that's pretty. And the outside in. Yes. Let's talk about Stephanie, the entrepreneur. You started your own coaching and alternative wellness practice. It's called Knockout Wellness, just outside of Boston. Starting your own business is not for the faint of heart. Oh, no. <laughs> Take me back to the day you decided to do this. You know, for me, the drive was always to be the person that I wish that I had had. And I think that for anyone contemplating entrepreneurship, if you don't have that, you're not going to get anywhere because it's not going to be authentic. People can pick up on that. Even if they don't know that's what's turning them off about you, they're going to pick up on it anyway. So for me, it was all about what can I take that I know from my own personal experience and that way I can speak about it with utter conviction because it's mine. It's my story. It's my interpretation of it. It's what worked for me. So I just became single-minded and that that was what I wanted to do because people would say, you know what you should try? And I was like, Thanks, but no, you know, because there's lots of things out there. There are lots of things that help pain. There are lots of things that help trauma. I just wanted to be straightforward and upfront about here's what works for me. And I think it can work for you. Isn't that an awful lot like walking the walk and yes. talking the talk yep. with every single person who walks through your door? So tell us about what therapies you provide through Knockout Wellness. Sure. The hands-on therapy I provide, I do a combination of kind of myofascial release and sports cupping. So cupping therapy has its roots in ancient Chinese medicine. This is a huge departure from that. I was trained in the classic way, and then I took that and applied it to, I ended up with a lot of athletes, no surprise, you know, and I had my office in a gym for a while, using cupping therapy to address a lot of those hamstring and shoulder, you know, repetitive stuff in the gym, those kinds of things. The number one thing it does is it increases circulation. And a lot of times people don't realize that is when you have muscle guarding due, due to an injury, there's no blood flow getting in there. So what this does is really open up the fascia, separate the fascia from the muscle, get fresh blood flowing in there. And people are oftentimes shocked at how much better they feel with just one appointment, even for things that they've had for a while. 
it's almost like everything's all stuck together and this just gets it unstuck because your body intuitively knows what to do. It just needs help. And then you give it that help and it's like, oh, this is what we need to do. And it works the same way, you know, I find with pain, especially with chronic pain is people are like, I didn't even realize that felt like that. Like they have this lack of awareness. It's common in people with back pain, like body mapping. So it's like the schema of your own body and your mind is off in people with chronic pain. So this helps bring awareness to the body part and feeling and sensation that's something other than pain. So it can be a very helpful therapeutic tool in that sense. I'm going to guess that you have had many success stories. Yes. People who've come to you and literally stood at your door in tears saying, I'm in so much pain. Yes. Can you share one or two of those stories with us? Sure. I have one woman that I worked with that had frozen shoulder, was slated for surgery. She was very nervous, had a lot of doubts. And I was like, you know, let's just, we're going to take it session by session and see what we get. And at any point in time, if you're not comfortable, you know, we can stop. I said, I can, you know, tell by looking at this this is gonna not gonna be a one and done she came in my office it looked like her arm was in a sling except there was no sling it was literally like plastered to her side so we were able over the course of I think probably seven sessions get her to the point that she didn't need therapy she's one of those people I have a few people that do this like every time they see me they'll like show me the body like they'll look at my arm and they'll wave (laughs) their arm in the air to show me that it's still working which I love and I think that on the coaching end where I deal more with behaviors I had a woman that I just work with very recently, who was really struggling at work, a lot of boundary issues, people dumping work on her plate that wasn't hers, having a tough time saying no. I got a message from her right before Christmas saying this is the best gift ever. She set the boundaries and um, she said, honestly, it's the point now they're afraid of ruffling my feathers. And she was like, you know, terrified of setting this boundary. And now once they realized what was happening that they were going to lose such a good employee, they were like, oh, well, we, you know, now now she's her own boss. She doesn't answer to anybody but herself. It was like above and beyond what she was even looking for. Women, I think especially, we don't realize how much power we have if we're willing to have the self-awareness to come from the right place. You know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in the ego story of, oh, they're trying to screw me over or whatever it might be instead of, you know, getting super objective and saying, here's the situation and, you know, here's what I think we need to do about it. You know, it sounds to me like knockout wellness from a therapeutic standpoint and then from a coaching standpoint where you help people, like you said, with boundaries, feeds your soul. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You look so happy when we talk about this. Take me back a little bit. I, I love to talk about family because I think that that's the place that defines us when we're growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what the message was in your house when you were growing up? I grew up in Burlington. I have a younger sister. So it was very much that kind of all-American vacations down the Cape. My parents always tried to do the best that they could to give us as much as they could with whatever they had. What was the message in your house about what matters most and about work ethic, that kind of thing? The message at home was family first. And as far as, you know, work ethic, really, it was about like loyalty, I think. I mean, those things tend to go hand in hand. Who were your role models when you were growing up? You know, my parents, I feel like I just wanted to be able to, you know, that, you know, be an adult, you know, and that's, you look to them like that's that, okay, that's, these are the things that I need to do. This is how I need to model my life after. Next couple questions I ask everybody who sits where you are, and thank you very much for coming to my home today in my makeshift studio here. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I don't get around it. I go through it. And that's, I think, the biggest point I try to hit home with my clients. And I know I'm just going to keep using the boxing metaphors. 
But I look at it like this. So if you have a fear, you're afraid of something. Going around it is not going to make it go away. So just like if you're in the ring, you have an opponent. You're not going to win the fight by dancing around the perimeter of the ring. You have to engage your opponent. You have to get in their face. And as my coach likes to say, impose your will. You need to impose your will. And you need to do that with an obstacle, even if that obstacle is you and your own behavior. You know, you need to say, guess what, people pleaser? I'm in charge here. You know, you maybe you got away with this for long enough, but I'm going to impose my will on you now. And I'm going to take charge because I think otherwise we allow our quirks, for lack of a better term, to control us. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And it can be personal or professional. And can you share that with everybody Mm, listening today? Be yourself. People say that all the time. But to embody it is a totally different thing. I think people say it. They know it intellectually. They think they're being themselves. And I was in this early in my career where I thought, you know, oh, I am. And then I'm like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. This isn't me. This is what I think I need to be. The more real I am and the more me I am, the more response I get. Just, you know, being myself. Final question for you, Stephanie. At this moment in your life, what does success mean to you? freedom. Always freedom for me. Because that's what success is, is being able to have the freedom to live your life as you choose. To not be beholden to, you know, someone else or someone else's dream. I hear that a lot, you know, especially in entrepreneurship. You're either building your own dream or you're building someone else's. So I, you know, took that to heart. It's like, no, I I have a vision what I want my life to look like. And I'm going to keep working towards it till I get where I want to go. Stephanie Monick, thank you so much for telling your story today. Thank you for reaching out to me and for being this week's guest on the story behind her success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you know someone that I should interview, reach out anytime. Tell me about her. Candy at CandyOterry.com. And thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. What's your story?